This podcast is Challenging Opinions and is presented by William Campbell. Thank you for downloading the Challenging Opinions podcast for February 12th, 2018. Our economy is changing rapidly. One of those changes is often said to be an increase in income inequality. But is that a bad thing or a good thing? Is that a real thing? And in any case, is there anything we can do about it? I'm asking a prominent academic economist. Challenging Opinions is the podcast where ideas are tested. Whether you are left or right, conservative or progressive, devout or skeptic, What matters is the strength of your argument, not the strength of your voice. What's on TV? I hate that this is on TV. This is going on my list. I should start a weekly podcast called Things Joe Hates. Most people hate this stuff. Things Joe Hates will be a weekly podcast to make the world a better place. Plus, every week I'd rate listener hate. People could find Things Joe Hates on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever they listen to podcasts. Or on our website at thingsjoehates.com. On a Skype line now, I have Dr. Anthony Davies. He is a professor at Duquesne University. He's also the presenter of the Words and Numbers podcast, which you can get at wordsandnumbers.org. Anthony, I was reading a paper of yours called Good and Bad Destruction. I should say you're an economics professor. What do buggy whips and broken windows have to do with uh, economics? Well, the interesting thing about uh about economics is that people have a tendency to to understand very well the things they see in front of them and not understand very well the things they don't see in front of them. And, and it gives people a skewed view of, of economics, hence, mm-hmm. hence this topic of buggy whips and broken windows. And and the whole the broken what economists call the broken window fallacy hinges around this uh, this phenomenon of you seeing part of the economy, but not the whole thing. So the story goes, well, a kid throws a rock through the window, which requires the shopkeeper to pay to have his window replaced. Mm-hmm. And and we see that and we say, well, in some sense, this is good because this, this shopkeeper is spending money to replace his window, which provides income for the glazier who produces the glass and income for the guy who installs it and, and so forth. Mm-hmm. And that's that's what we call the seen part of the economy. And, and people look at that and say, well, this this is why, you know, perhaps throwing that rock through the window was, was actually a good thing. And in some not only not only non-economists, but some economists so, um, among them, Paul Krugman, Paul Krugman yes. you know, fa- famous economists who, who will subscribe to this fallacy. Right. And, mm-hmm. and here's where here's how you realize this is a fallacy. Um what would have happened if the kid had not thrown the rock through the window? Well, if the kid had not thrown the rock through the window, we say, well, the, the shopkeeper would not have spent the money um, replacing the glass, which is correct, but he would have used it somewhere else, right? Perhaps buying shoes for his kids, thereby providing income for the shoemaker. Mm-hmm. Or perhaps he wouldn't have spent the money at all. Perhaps he would have left it in the bank. But to leave it in the bank, what's the bank going to do? It's going to turn around and loan that money out to his neighbor who's trying to build a house. Mm -hmm. And so the money gets spent regardless. 
and and so consequently it's it's fallacious to to look at the rock going through the window saying this is a good thing because we focus only on what we see the guy replacing the glass we forget what we don't see which is all the things he would have done with the money had he not been forced to replace the glass Anthony you you're the economics professor am i right in thinking that this is what econ- economists call opportunity cost Yeah, opportunity cost is a good way of describing that. The opportunity cost of replacing the glass is is all those things he could have done with the money had he not had to replace the glass. And and here's where the whole issue of of stimulus spending, which is a very practical matter, Mm -hmm. now comes in. Because the argument we will hear from politicians is stimulus spending is good because what happens is the government spends our tax dollars and that creates income for people who who buy things and provide income for others and the economy picks up. Mm-hmm. And again, it's like looking only at the rock that goes through the window. What we're missing is what would have happened to that money had the government not spent it. Well, if the government had not spent it, presumably it wouldn't have taxed us to, to raise the money. So we would have had more money in our pockets that we would have spent on other things. And and so when all the dust settles, what happens when the government stimulus spends mm-hmm. is it's it's in effect replacing all the things that taxpayers would buy with their own money, replacing that with something the government decides it's going to buy with the taxpayers' money. Let me let me pause you there for a second, because you're you're talking about and perhaps under Obama this was a major issue stimulus spending. We were looking uh, down the barrel of a very serious uh, recession, perhaps even tipping into a depression. And the Obama era policy to try and get out of that was this stimulus spending, and you are perhaps partially correct that that stimulus spending could perhaps have come from uh, taxation. But generally, doesn't it come from either government borrowings or another form of um, taxation, which is essentially inflation, whereby the government prints the money in quantitative easing? Is is that the same effect? Yeah. So there are only three ways the government can come up with the money it spends, and, and you've identified all three of them, taxing, borrowing, and effectively printing the money. And the, ta- the, the borrowing and the printing of the money is, in the end, the same as taxation. When the government borrows money, eventually either that money has to be paid back or forevermore, the government must be paying interest on that money. Mm-hmm. Well, where does the government get the money to pay the interest or where does it get the money to to pay off the loan that comes from taxpayers? So government borrowing is just taxing future taxpayers as opposed to taxing today's taxpayers. Yeah, but hang on a second, Anthony, and, and you're correct. The value cannot come out of thin air. It comes from somewhere. But the stimulus spending, particularly coming from quantitative easing, easing essentially printing huge amounts of money, what that does is it triggers inflation and it makes people who have very large piles of money, it makes those piles of money worth less and less over time. And those, you know, if somebody's, you know, working a job, maybe making 40,000 a year, not so much money, if they then by getting a promotion, by uh, a tax cut or whatever, their income increases to, let's say, 60,000 a year, their spending is very likely to 
increase activity in the economy, just in the way that you describe. But somebody like Jeff Bezos, if his tax cut that we saw in the in the recent uh, uh, federal budget, if his tax cut means that he now has $1.3 trillion instead of $1.1 trillion or whatever, that's very unlikely to have the same sort of stimulus effect as the average guy who gets a, a typical pay increase. Yeah, and, and this we're bumping up again against the broken window fallacy because what we see is is the $60,000 guy spending his money and and Jeff Bezos not spending his money. The, the, the money just sits in the bank. And the part that we aren't seeing is what happens to that money that sits in the bank. And what happens is the bank loans it out to other people who then spend it. Uh, you know, buying houses or cars or what have you. And and so Jeff Bezos... Well, well one thing, you know, uh, but hold, hold on for a second. One thing that they can do is they can uh, loan it out for people to buy assets, which cre- creates um, asset price inflation, which doesn't really benefit anybody. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure that, that I agree with that. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure I'm agreeing with your premise that that buying the assets simply creates asset inflation. If that were the case, why would anyone no, buy supp- the assets? Supplying, supplying more money, uh, giving everybody in the market for those assets more money leaves you with the same amount of assets, but the, the asset price goes up. Well, you know, a painting by Van Gogh that's worth, uh, let's say, $40 million isn't you know, any more beautiful because the type of people who buy $40 million paintings are now richer and they pay $50 million for it. Yeah, and, and again, the broken window fallacy. What we're missing is the difference between securities and, and the Van Gogh mm-hmm. is is that we can create new, more securities. And so as the demand for securities increases, this this is positive incentive for entrepreneurs to found more companies because there's people who are willing to invest in these things. And so on on the back end, we get more entrepreneurship. I, I think that argument works great in theory, but... It has been observed that the increase in real wages in the past 20 or 30 years for typical workers, guy who's working in a factory or somebody who's working, you know, a typical middle class job, their real wage increase has been negligible while um, extremely wealthy people have their their net worth has shot up. Yeah, actually, that's not true. Um, what what you're seeing there is what is an aggregation bias. And I, I'll give you an, an example that will make it clear. Mm-hmm. Ten years ago, the average American was 37 years old. Today, the average American is 37 years old. It's incorrect to conclude that over the course of the decade, <laughs> no Americans age. Yeah. And clearly, we all aged, right? But what, what's happening is the older people are dropping off the end, y- younger people are being born. Mm-hmm. And so the average remains constant, despite the fact that every single person is aging. And there's a similar phenomenon with wages. Although the average wage rate has remained constant, on average, people's wages have been going up. And what's happening is, as you reach the end of your career and your wage is high, you I know, drop roll off back, roll back a little bit in. there, Anthony. Repeat that for me again. The average wages, say that again? Although the average wage has remained constant, mm-hmm. people's wages on average have been rising. How do we square that circle? Because what's happened is, over time, people who are uh, toward the end of their career and earning a lot retire, so we no longer count them. 
-hmm. Young people enter the workforce at a low wage. Mm -hmm. So we start to count them. And so what happens is those two forces balance. So the average wage I'm remains not sure, the I'm not same. sure that they do. I'm not sure that they do, Anthony. Could somebody now who's left college get a, a job that would make payments on a loan that would uh, where that one job would pay for uh, a family, a family home, a couple of cars? Uh, yeah, it depends on what your college major is, though. Sure, but people even with high school um, high school diplomas could do that in the 1960s. Yeah, but but notice but notice the sorts of things we buy today. Mm-hmm. A person in the 1960s could not have afforded. It, well, some of them didn't exist, but well, exactly, but, it would yeah. have cost an infinite amount of money. True, um, but um, going back to what I was saying, asset price inflation, which has a big imp- uh, a big impact on housing costs. Uh, that has hit younger people, but but you do accept that that of the wage uh, increases, the great bulk of them have been at the very very top end of the scale. There's been a, a an increase at the top end of the scale, yeah, and largely that's been larger than what you get at the bottom end of the scale. But but there's a couple of important footnotes here. One is you're looking at wages. That's not the appropriate measure. The appropriate measure is compensation, which is wages plus employer-paid benefits. Mm -hmm, And what's been happening over time, because of differences in tax treatment, employer-paid increases in compensation have largely been weighted toward increases in employer-paid benefits. So this is non-wage costs, the, the employer paying the health insurance and so forth. Right, right. Things like that. And and one other thing worth mentioning here, this stuff I'm, I'm discussing with you, is it's not theoretical. There have been studies that have been done which have tracked cohorts of people over time. So you, you know, pick a thousand people at random and watch their wages over the course of 20, 30 years. Mm-hmm. And this phenomenon I'm describing to you is indeed happening, that their average wage is going up, despite the fact that the average wage of the for people is, as a whole remains constant. Okay, that sounds good, but and we hear and we've talked about on this podcast before millennials. It really doesn't seem, at least anecdotally, you can contradict me on this if you want to, but it really doesn't seem that people who are leaving college now, possibly with a couple of hundred thousand dollars worth of student debt, it doesn't seem like the same input is giving them the same output as their parents um yeah so there, there's all there's all kinds of problems here and at a gut level in some in some cases you may be right um but but notice something very different going on today versus in, in our parents time and that is the sheer magnitude of people going to college we just de- we decided in this country at some point that the key to success is a college education mm-hmm. and so we enact all sorts of governmental policies to push people who might not otherwise go into college. So, so go we've got college. essentially grade inflation or, or qualification inflation there. Yeah. But never, nevertheless, the people, you know, that cohort who now go to college who might not have would have been able to get jobs, perhaps different jobs, but jobs that would have paid a, a single earner would have, would have had enough money to start a family. Yeah. And and that's still the case now. If you look at 
at jobs that do not require a college education, but do require some skills. So, for example, a licensed car mechanic, a plumber, an electrician, mm -hmm. the, average, the average wage rates for those jobs fall in the same range as the average wage rates for uh, college students with business degrees. So, so what you're saying is that maybe there's a uh, people are being misguided towards college degrees when maybe more vocational training would suit them better. I I think that's true. I think that's true. We've somehow along the line decided. Have you, to push have you a discussed this with your students? Yeah, I, I do. I, I talk about this. In fact, uh, my colleague James Harrigan and I go around the country talking to high school students. And one of the things we talk about is this, to be very careful uh, when someone tells you a college degree is valuable. It isn't. A college major is valuable. And depending on what major you choose, you may actually be better off not going to college at all. And that's certainly an interesting take on that. I think there are, are many uh, alternative views, but I just want to switch to one thing. There's been an enormous shift in the economy such that manufacturing has moved essentially to Asia, to China. Is it really possible that that won't have an enormous effect on the structure of the economy, for example, in the US or in the West in general? Sure, it does. Now, there's a couple points here. One is people will point to that and say, that's the decline of American manufacturing. And that's actually false. Although the, the number of Americans employed in manufacturing has dropped by something like half since the 1950s, our manufacturing output uh, uh, Hold on, slow down, I want, because I know you're a numbers person. Uh, it has dropped yeah. by half in absolute terms or in, uh, as a proportion of the no, workforce? No, in percentage, as a, as a percentage of the, of the workforce. Okay. But over that same period, our output of manufactured products has tripled. Mm -hmm. So far from, far okay, from then, America... Okay, oh, well then let's go back to the point that we had. So that means that for a, a declining, a hugely declining proportion of the workforce in manufacturing. They're making far more stuff. They're making yes. people who own those factories very wealthy indeed, or who own those manufacturing facilities very wealthy indeed. But their wages have been, I think, at best static. But they haven't. They've been rising. Their compensation has been rising. We have gotten so say good. At the same, oh, oh, no, the, the overwhelming, okay, it may have gone up, but, but the overwhelming portion of the increase in compensation in the past, say, 20 years has gone to the very top end. Yeah, it, it has. Even, even though productivity, too, too. So, so your average worker, his productivity level has, or hers very frequently, has gone through the roof, but their compensation has not kept up. No, that's not correct. The compensation has matched, roughly speaking, right increases in productivity. Now, your original your original claim that the that the gains their gains have been weighted toward the people at the top. Mm. Notice two important things. One is there is no such thing as the people at the top. Who the the, the Americans who constitute the top, let's say five percent, change dramatically from year to year, from decade to decade. So you know it's it's something like it, I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna. I'm not going to make this up, but but what I'm about to tell you is is rife with a little bit of error because I'm trying to do it from memory. Roughly speaking, fifty, the average American can expect to spend at least one year out of the next decade 
amongst the top 5% of wage earners, mm-hmm. right? There's a, there's a tremendous amount of churn. We talk about the 1% as if it's a static group, and it isn't. We're mm-hmm. all mo- some, some of the people are static. They're there forever, right? But there are a tremendous number of Americans who are moving in and out. Sometimes they're in the 1%, sometimes they're not, right? And, 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 and so it's, it's, it's incorrect to think of this group as, as static. In, also, it's incorrect to think that the group isn't doing anything, right? Mm-hmm. So we, we look at, again, we come to the fallacy of the seen and the unseen. Uh, we actually, see no, the, no, yes, I do understand that. And, and I agree that, that the people who are at the very, very top tend to make a very significant economic contribution. And that can be unseen because it can be in management or whatever, and it's, they don't appear to be getting their hands dirty. That, that's, a, that's, that's, to me, an, a, oh, but a, an I wasn't obvious... Oh, go there. Oh, well, go ahead. It, it comes from risk. The, the people who, who put their wealth into a company on the hopes that this company will grow and prosper mm-hmm. risk their wealth. Now, what we see are the ones that pay off. We yeah, see and a whole the bunch of them lose, lose their shirts. Right. Uh, we, but, we, but we don't, we don't know which ones on the they're going to be. News. Yes, yes. I, right. I understand that point. But the to, and I just want to introduce one last topic before I let you go. There is what's called the Gini coefficient. And yep. uh, you're an economist, so you probably can define it better than I can. But this is essentially the degree of inequality within a society. Is that a good definition right. of it? It's a degree of income inequality. Yes. yes. Yeah. In America, in the United States, uh, that figure is quite high. It is not as high as some countries. You have uh, some, um, for example, Central American countries where you have a couple of rich families literally own the entire country. Uh, you have Russia where it's quite high, where you have um, uh, oligarchs and people who benefited from the post-communist privatization. Uh, in other countries, it's relatively low, sometimes because everybody's poor and sometimes perhaps in in Scandinavian countries because everybody's quite well off. Are you worried by how high the Gini coefficient is in the US? No, no. It's, I'm not worried about it for, for a whole bunch of reasons that we can devote an entire episode to. Um, but, but let me tell you this in passing. It is the case. It's the case when you compare cities, when you compare states, and when you compare countries, mm-hmm. that cities, states, and countries that are more free market, that is the government is more hands-off, mm-hmm. have experienced inequality, but they experience less inequality than cities, states, and countries in which the government is more heavy-handed. Now, there are exceptions, right? So I'm talking about the average trend. Mm -hmm. But this is a remarkable trend that persists not just across cities, states, and countries, but also across time. But it's difficult difficult to, to say what the direction of causation is there. Well, it is difficult to say what the direction of causation is there. However, it is easy to to say the following causal statement, that that a heavy-handed government does not improve inequality. In Scandinavia, you might disagree with that. Uh, and well, in, in, in any case, the governments with the, yes, uh, and in, in the, A, you're correct, there are exceptions. And B, in any case, the, the fact that the government wants to reduce inequality doesn't by any means guarantee that they're going to succeed. But the point that I was driving at is that there is an incredibly strong association between the Gini coefficient and violence in a society. That's to say, regardless of the absolute level of wealth, the relative inequality in the society seems to be very, very closely linked with the amount of violence. And of course, the amount of violence in a society is a large portion of of quality of life there. Isn't it possible 
that it would be worthwhile sacrificing some economic growth in order to have more equality because everybody's lives would be better even if they weren't richer yeah it, i i don't i don't subscribe to that claim um the, Which claim? In, that equal that e- equality unto itself is a good thing uh, that doesn't follow. No, no I, don't sub- right? I don't subscribe to that either. But the Gini efficient, which is a very mathematical measurement of, of uh, income inequality, does appear to be extremely closely linked with violence. I, d- I don't know that. I, ha- I haven't seen any it, data it along the, those the, lines. The, the, the correlation is, is almost 0.9. It's, it's extremely close. You can almost it's, – it's far more than all other items combined. I find that difficult to swallow because I, I have looked at data comparing Gini to economic freedom, mm-hmm. and those two things are inverse, more economic freedom, less inequality. Yes. And economic freedom is also highly correlated with, with peacefulness, that is, um, the lack of, of strife. So if economic freedom is is correlated in the good direction with both those things, it, I'm very surprised that those two things would be highly correlated in opposite directions. I will I will look up the connection between Gini and uh, violence, and I'll put a link for that on the show notes for this uh, podcast. One of the things we have to keep in mind when we think about inequality is remember where it comes from, right? It comes from the fact that we're all different. Some of us are, are born uh, more attractive than others. Some of us are born smarter than others. Some of us are born luckier than others. And because of that, if you leave people alone, some of them will naturally rise higher mm-hmm. than others. Mm-hmm. Inequality is is necessarily a result of the human condition that we aren't all the same. And and so efforts to reduce inequality, now there's inequality that comes about because, you know, the, someone has allowed me to take something from you. Clearly that can be resolved. But there is a point beyond which you can't resolve inequality any further without in effect, running up against the definition of what it is to be human. Yes, yes. Uh, um, but the uh, the ambition, I think, there is not to eliminate inequality, but to perhaps mitigate it slightly. Um, but in any case, it's been a very spirited discussion. Uh, Dr. Anthony Davis, economics professor at Duquesne University, thank you very much for talking to me. My pleasure. Thank you. Never miss a show. Follow at Challenging O on Twitter and like Challenging Opinions on Facebook for updates on each show's contents. That's all for the Challenging Opinions podcast published on February 12th, 2018. In the podcast there, we disagreed about income inequality and the link between the Gini effect, the measure of income inequality in an economy, the link between that and violence in the society. I've looked up the figures and it seems that I'm right. One, that the overwhelming proportion of income growth in the past few decades has gone to the wealthiest people and that there is a strong link between a high Gini score, that's to say high levels of income inequality, and high violence in that society. I have links for those sources and Anthony's podcast, his academic articles and more in the show notes on the website. And do you know someone else who I should interview? What topics should I cover? I'm always listening for your suggestions. And if you like the podcast, there's one thing that you can do that really helps other people to find it. You know what to do by now. Go to iTunes, give the podcast a rating, and write a short review. There's a link on the website to the iTunes page. Also, you can like the show on Facebook, and on Twitter, you can follow the show at Challenging O. And most importantly, subscribe to the show. It's free. You can use Apple Podcasts, 
Google Play or any other podcast app or software or you can subscribe by email and get a free spam free email every time a new podcast goes online. You can find all of that or get in touch with me at www.changingopinions.com. Coming up next Monday, that's February 19th, I'll be talking to the veteran English feminist Linda Bellos. It's a fantastic interview. I've recorded it already. We had a very spirited discussion, so don't miss it. The Changing Opinions podcast is produced and presented by me, William Campbell. Thank you for listening. Thank you.